Hey everyone, it's Augusto. Just a quick show note before we get started. As a thank you for this first season of the podcast, I'm doing a book giveaway. If you'd like a chance to win a copy of Lindsay Tremuda's book, The New Parisienne, either for yourself or for a loved one, submit your answer to this question. Lindsay grew up outside of which U.S. city? You can submit your response on my Instagram page at Life of Gusto. Just drop me a comment on any one of my posts or head to my website, AugustoAndres.com and use the contact me page to email me your answer. I will select a winner at random and announce it via my Instagram stories. Thanks again, everybody. Happy listening. Hello and welcome to the Life of Gusto podcast. I'm Augusto Andres. This is a special bonus episode with writer and journalist, Lindsay Tremuda. In this episode, we continue our conversation about her new book, The New Parisienne, and looking ahead to that day when we can hopefully all travel again, Lindsay shares some of her favorite places in Paris. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for tuning in. I recommend going back to episode 12 to hear the first part of our conversation. And if you're a returning listener, thanks for your support. If you haven't already done so, hit that subscribe button, share the podcast with your friend. Thanks for listening. There's another issue I wanted to talk about, um, something that doesn't often get discussed when talking about Paris, but um, issues of accessibility. And um, I have a family member who uses a wheelchair and whenever we travel, it's something we're always kind of aware of is trying to think about where where can we go? What places are accessible? What places aren't? and I thought about, you know, that I'd love to, to go to Paris um, as a family sometime and thinking, you know, I don't think it'd be very easy to, to navigate the city. Um, There's a lot that needs to still change. And especially when it comes to accessibility issues in the city. Right. Um, and, you know, I think we all know this to a degree rationally, um, but until either you yourself or someone who becomes injured or, you know, develops a disability or you have close family Mm -hmm. um, that, that suffers through this, you're not paying attention to the ways in which there could be improvements. So I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, Elisa Rojas um, and and the work that she's doing to raise awareness about um, accessibility issues. Absolutely. Elisa is, um, she works as an employment lawyer. Um, so I believe that has to do with sort of labor rights and uh, employee protections. Um, and on top of that, she is, is extremely engaged as a disability rights activist. She herself is um, someone who was born with a disability and mm-hmm. so has actually left Chile where she was born, um, partly because her family wanted her to seek care that you know, she couldn't necessarily get in her home country. And so they uh, immigrated to to France. Um, and so she's been in France since she was, I think, around two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, has had plenty of operations and um, gone through the system. And by the system, I mean, sort of navigated what, what it's like um, when you have a chronic or lifelong disability that requires certain arrangements or or, or certain adjustments to your way of living. So Mm -hmm. 
one of the things I learned from her was just how different the the situation is for Americans living with disabilities versus French living with disabilities. And part of that has to do with sort of the Disability Rights Act of in the United States, which preceded by decades um, any sort of uh, formal or official um, policies in France. And and which really mobilized people. Um, mm. You know, I've seen some documentaries uh, that that really highlight how unified the activists in America were fighting for their rights, and not mm. just those who were directly, you know, suffering from disabilities, but their families, and so you know, activists in general. And in France, from what she told me, there's little of the same. I guess, rallying together in great numbers that you have in the U.S. And so she feels that they have almost less lobbying power. However, the reason they need to lobby here partly has to do with a culture of institutionalization. So rather than try to help disabled people live autonomously and have them give or take a few arrangements, be able to function within society like everybody else, Mm -hmm. um, there's this tendency to put people in these specific centers and not to say lock, you know, lock them in and throw away the key, but there, there's this idea that they should be better off in a, in a facility that is 100% catered to whatever they're dealing with. But the reality is that they often, especially when children are in these kinds of institutions and are going through schooling via these these centers um, often fall far behind and suffer from great social isolation. And obviously it varies according to the the disability that one might suffer from, but you know, she spent more than seven years in one such institution and had to sort of make up for lost time when she left. Right. Um, and she counts herself as kind of fortunate that she was able to pursue higher studies and pass the bar and 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 start working because it's not so easy for a lot of people. And she sort of blames France for their shortcoming in, you know, not really blending or, or bending society to fit the needs of its citizens, but rather expecting certain citizens to adapt to the shortcomings to of infrastructure and services and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think what was so striking and what I really wanted to communicate through her 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 voice and her story was that, yes, there are a lot of social services in France. That's, I'm sure all of your listeners, if they know even a little bit about France, they know that there's quite a strong social net. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and surely, you know, I, I don't think she's, Elisa particularly has had to worry about paying for much of these, you know, of, of her care or treatment at times or even surgeries. However, that doesn't mean it's a perfect system. Right. And even as something as simple as taking the bus in Paris, um, after, I don't remember exactly how long it was after I spoke with her, but I was on a bus Mm. when there was a a woman in a wheelchair who was waiting at a station and the bus, for whatever reason, I think there was a bit of construction or something, couldn't, didn't pull over quite as much as, you know, he should have. Um, But I guess from his vantage point, it looked like he couldn't get closer to the curb and was almost about to to leave, to depart without even trying to, to allow this woman to get on, mm. on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until there was sort of an out, like general outcry from passengers, <laughs> thankfully, right. um, that told him like, no, you have plenty of room to maneuver. You need to move over for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, she was 
very capable. And, and, you know, once the ramp came down, she was able to get on, but you know, it was that sort of, it's too much work. It's inconveniencing me. I'm just going to sort of leave her there. Right. That, that I think was one of, you know, I'm sure a million stories. Um, but, and it, and it goes back to something Elisa told me, um, which is that, you know, it's great to have these accessible buses and public transport and ramps and things. But if the people operating these vehicles and these, these machines aren't properly trained or don't mm-hmm. do what they're told, right. it's just cosmetic. Right. So yeah. I think now my eyes are fully open to how mm-hmm. Paris is, you know, has, has, has a lot of work to do. <laughs> what struck me about reading that profile of her was it was more than just, you know, about physical barriers, right? That it was those, like you mentioned, the barriers that the institutions put in, in way. And the thing that she, um, she said that a lot of the times those institutions existed not to help people become autonomous, but just to keep the institutions going. I mean, there's institutionalized you know, discrimination, right? Totally. And actually, you bring up a a good point, which is, um, you know, which is is the conflict of interest, right? Because these institutions are supported by, you know, government supported uh, organizations and things. And so there's, there's sort of this gray area of, you know, is this is this sort of how they justify keeping people in, right? Mm -hmm. Keep getting the funding and, um, but ultimately not everybody should be in these, these kinds of places. And so she's, she's a, a strong, strong proponent of de-institutionalization and really pushing the, the state to figure out other ways. Thinking about the new Paris, if you were going to write an addendum of places that have opened up since the book, do you have a, a list of some of your favorites? Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, since the new Paris, you know, there's the Balkan Cantina Ibrique. So the mm-hmm. owner's Franco Romanian. Right. Um, her place is amazing. And the community she's gathered around her, around this cooking that is relatively very, very, uh, seldom explored in France. You know, I think Mm. that's extraordinary. All of the different types of Southeast Asian cuisines that are present um, and that people are really excited about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I probably would say much more in the greenification of Paris Mm. sort of discussion, you know, obviously the mayor is part of that, but there are plenty of other initiatives that have really push that further along. Um, and there's, there's so much to explore there, whether it's like, you know, these impressive roof, rooftop farms or, you know, big agricultural projects for the Western part of Paris and removing all the cars. I mean, I mean like yeah, right. the mayor since the new Paris came out has just doubled down in a big way on, on pollution and car traffic and mm-hmm. all the things that make, you know, and adding in the Paris bike lanes. unpleasant. Right. And all and the, the bike, bike lanes. lanes. I think oh, the last visit I went, I totally just forgot about the bike lanes. I almost got knocked over. <laughs> yeah. No, now you have to be very <laughs> attentive when you're walking around or if you're like me and you're riding your bike and then you have to remember, there's a lot to look at actually. So I'm now yeah. on a bike since confinement <laughs> ended in the spring. I bought a used bike and I find that actually it's very exhausting, even quick trips because there are just so many things to pay attention to right. and people jutting out of, you know, 
out of nowhere. And, <laughs> you know, so it's a lot, but it's, it's putting us on a good path. Yeah. Now we just need a lot of education so that people don't screw it up for everybody else. <laughs> right. Right. We can maybe start to be hopeful with the vaccine yeah. coming. Oh, and, let's, let's hope. You know, I'm thinking ahead to that day when people can come back to Paris. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, what are some of your favorite places that you have at the end of the book? I've, the women share their, their ideal days with uh, the mm-hmm. readers. I know I'm probably, I'm sure that's super hard for you to do, but could you maybe describe a, yeah. an ideal day? Uh, it's, it is tricky because, you know, it, it very much depends on, you know, the weather, what the weather yeah. is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's assume that it's a lovely day and, you know, it's not too cold, not too wet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, surely it would, it would start with coffee at one of my favorite places like Dream and Man, um, which is in the 11th Island, the small or, uh, or perhaps um, I, I'd walk over to Partisan or Lustig, which is on the way to um, the city hall, sort of, sort of between the Marais and the, and the real heart of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd cross the river maybe and uh, you know, go past Notre Dame and then over to the bookstore where Shakespeare and Company is and then uh, continue winding even further as, until I get to sort of uh, the area behind Odeon and Saint-Michel and you have sort of these uh, slightly hilly streets that lead toward Luxembourg Gardens um, where I just was two days ago actually and mm. it, it felt good to be able to get back there. Um, walking around and watching people I mean I really do love just watching there there are all these groups especially of of um, locals who do not geriatric stretching, but some form of like very slow, easy <laughs> aerobic mm-hmm. groups that you see too. And I just think it's kind of, it's just funny. I like people watching and seeing what people's behaviors are. So I would probably do that and then potentially then go to another bookstore, the Red Wheelbarrow, which is mm-hmm. um, on one side of the Luxembourg Gardens. And then potentially switch directions completely past the Pantheon, um, mm-hmm. which has finally i believe finished all of its renovations too okay. there was a lot of work going on at the dome so right. uh that's something to keep in mind the renovations mm-hmm. have been completed nice, um nice. and then i'd probably make my way back toward it's a bit out of the way but i would maybe maybe i also have my bike and in which case this is a lot Perfect. faster and then i would ride <laughs> over to to pali Royal, which is another one of my favorite spots and so right. i would you know bring some book that i invariably bought and sit in the park and maybe if if things are all normal i would have lunch at ellsworth or kunataraya for udon noodles and uh, and then another coffee at kitsune or telescope which is right nearby and right. walk past the the bnf the bibliothèque nationale de france which has uh, the the richelieu location is absolutely gorgeous mm-hmm. um and then and then I don't know, kind of see where, where the day takes me. I mean, I, that didn't really include any museums, but I tend to be just a, a wanderer and nice. just <laughs> see, see, see what, uh, what moves me uh, in, the, in the general area where I'm walking. But I think the key, key thing is being someplace long enough to watch people and really take in their behavior. I think that's my favorite. Right. It's the perfect favorite, favorite thing to that. do. I have to ask you, I, I think I heard you say on a podcast that um, one of three ingredients you always have in your kitchen pantry is pasta. <laughs> Did I 
say that? I think I think it was one of the. Oh my gosh! Them. I mean, it's yeah. accurate. I mean, it's not a lie, <laughs> but. <laughs> and um, I follow a lot of uh, French chefs on my Instagram, and I've noticed more and more of them um, putting doing their take on Italian food, and. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, is, is Italian food having its moment in, in Paris? Oh my gosh. I think um, there are like a couple of dishes that if you were to poll French people, which I think there have been newspapers that have done this, that among sort of the average French person's favorite meal, pizza is, you know, in the mm-hmm. top three. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely, I mean, it's always been here, certainly yeah. because of, you know, just the proximity to Italy and every and everything, but there's certainly been a... a, a a more trendy push, a more mm. uh, deliberate move into that space. Um, and and most recently, I think it was back in September, I went and took myself to uh, Papi, which is a, a Japanese chef doing, huh. you know, sourdough pizza and huh. udon, cacio e pepe, and, and, mm. and just like really interesting wow. twists on, on Italian food. So I wouldn't say it's, um, you know, it's still pricier than almost anywhere you'd find pizza and pasta across Italy. And so mm-hmm. the Italians come here and they laugh, but um, <laughs> at least you're getting better product now. And that's, yeah. that's super exciting. And actually if anybody is listening and, and wants to seek out when they're in Paris, like a, an excellent grocer just for Italian specialty products, mm-hmm. the place to go is RAP, R-A-P, Epicerie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's absolutely outstanding. So that's the place for sort of like the best of Italian everything from from hams and cheeses to you know uh packaged goods and sauces and condiments and balsamic and all that kind of stuff perfect nice (laughs) and for you 2021 any destinations that you have in mind outside of france potentially to to either write about or just travel personally wouldn't that be nice yeah um actually i do hope to get back to italy because you know, finally in the last two years, two, three years, I've spent a little bit more time there and there's still so much I want to explore. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I want to get to Puglia and I want to go to Sicily where our, part of my family is from. And oh, wow. um, there's just a lot, a lot to, to explore there. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, within the first half of the year, I can maybe get back there if all is safe and sound. Yes. Yes. Let's hope. I have to get back there too. My, Fingers I, crossed. Right. First time we went to, to Rome. As soon as I got on the plane in the U.S., I started to get sick. And as soon as I landed, <gasps> in, I got, I had like full-on fever. <laughs> and I was in bed for oh, four no. days. <laughs> oh, no. So, oh, so no. You need to do that again then. I have to go back. Yeah. Redo. Yes, exactly. Before confinement, I was planning a trip to the Dolomites. <laughs> oh, that's the other place I would love to go. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. No, I mean, this is the thing. That I, I, I've start, I think the, the confinement or all of 2020 really has made me realize that we really don't need to go very far when you're in Europe, which is, you know, mm-hmm. just an incredible luxury, but, you know, it's also better on the environment not to go as far. And, right. um, you know, so if I can do a little bit more of that, then, then I'll, I'll feel like I'm still seeing things. Yes. Yes. Just more sustainably. Right. Exactly. Well, fingers crossed for all of us for 2021. Yes, um, <laughs> yes. And you especially getting back to the back onto the road and back to France, which you love. Oh yes. Already like starting to look for flights, but I, I think it's a little bit premature. I'm gonna wait. <laughs> a it's exciting bit to do that though, and I'm eager to see um there's a, it, it's sort of like when you poll people during an election, right? People say one thing and 
you know, they'll do another. And I, and I really wonder if the people who have been polled about their willingness to travel, how, like how quickly they'll feel ready to travel, mm-hmm. what that will actually look like. And if right. they're all, you know, being honest and will we just see flights jam packed again and see the streets packed? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of eager to see what that looks like. Right. Right. Yeah. Me too. They're to be continued. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yes, thank exactly. you for having me. Every your listeners are great. Joyeux Hanukkah, joyeux Noël. Bonne fête. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. To find a list of all the places that Lindsay mentioned in this episode, head over to my Instagram at Life of Gusto. You can also go to my website, AugustaAndres.com. I've created a special Google My Maps with Lindsay's itinerary. You can download it and save it for a future visit to Paris. You'll find Lindsay on multiple platforms. She's on Instagram and Twitter at Lost and Cheeseland. No, I Lost and Cheeseland. And on the web, lindsaytremuda.com. It's been a pretty amazing first season of the Life of Gusto podcast. Thank you, everybody, for your encouragement, feedback, and support. If you feel so inclined, head over to Apple Podcasts, write a review, and throw the show however many stars you think it deserves. I've got one more show in the works to round out 2020. That's coming soon. In the meantime, stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye-bye.